Welcome to My Cousin Jane, a podcast about Jane Austen and her works, with your host, Lee Phelan. Welcome back to another episode of My Cousin Jane. Each week, we look at what you might think of as the behind-the-scenes featurettes or deleted scenes of a particular chapter in one of Austen's books. And this week, we're going to talk about Pride and Prejudice, Chapter 13. This chapter introduces us to Mr. Collins. He's the cousin of the Longbourn sisters and is next in line to inherit the estate once Mr. Bennet dies. Now, this fact doesn't win him any points in Mrs. Bennet's eyes, and Mr. Bennet's previous interactions with him leads him to believe that he's quite an insensible man. Now, before Mr. Collins shows up, he does write a letter informing the family that he has invited himself over for a visit. Let's listen to a brief clip from that letter, and as always, our audio clips come courtesy of Karen Savage and LibriVox.org. About a month ago I received this letter, and about a fortnight ago I answered it, for I thought it a cause of some delicacy, and requiring early attention. It is from my cousin Mr. Collins, who, when I am dead, may turn you all out of this house as soon as he pleases." "'Oh, my dear,' cried his wife, "'I cannot bear to hear that mentioned. Pray do not talk of that odious man. I do think it is the hardest thing in the world that your estate should be entailed away from your own children. I am sure, if I had been you, I should have tried long ago to do something or other about it.' Jane and Elizabeth tried to explain to her the nature of an entail. They had often attempted to do it before, but it was a subject on which Mrs. Bennet was beyond the reach of reason and she continued to rail bitterly against the cruelty of settling an estate away from a family of five daughters, in favour of a man whom nobody cared anything about. So regardless of whether Mrs. Bennet is listening, we're going to take a few minutes today to talk about the nature of an entail, and a little bit about Regency estate law. But first, I just have to point out this little quip by Mr. Bennet. Pretty much everything Mr. Bennet says in the novel is a mixture of dry humour and sarcasm. And while Elizabeth often gets the spotlight for being the voice of Jane Austen's witty social commentary, Mr. Bennet has his fair share of quips as well. And a great example of that is in this chapter, with his comment that he felt the letter of Mr. Collins was a matter of some delicacy and required, quote, early attention. But he also says that he received the letter a month ago, didn't answer it until two weeks after he received it, and then two weeks after that, he decides to bring it up to the rest of the family. So now, on to the infamous entail of Longbourn Estate. In the early days of the English aristocracy, the right of primogeniture was fairly well established. This was the right of the firstborn son to inherit his father's estate, rather than having that estate divided amongst all the children. Now, there are a bunch of reasons why this happened, but one of the main reasons for its beginnings was social influence and security. Adam Smith writes about this in the classic economics text, The Wealth of Nations. He says, quote, When land was considered as the means not of substance merely, but of power and protection, it was thought better that it should descend undivided to one. In those disorderly times, every great landlord was a sort of petty prince. His tenants were his subjects, he was their judge, and in some respects their legislator in peace and their leader in war. He made war according to his own discretion, frequently against his neighbors and sometimes against his sovereign. The security of a landed estate, therefore, the protection which its owner could afford to those who dwelt on it, depended upon its greatness. To divide it was to ruin it, and to expose every part of it to be oppressed and swallowed up by the incursions of its neighbors. End quote. So primogeniture had two main goals. 
First, it was to make sure a family's land remained intact by not dividing amongst all the children. And second, it was to keep the land tied to the family's name by making sure that only the oldest son inherited. Because if a daughter inherited the estate and then married, that estate would then pass into a different family line. But primogeniture is only half of the story here, because that right alone did not stop the heir from parceling up the land to sell it off as he pleased. So in addition to the right of primogeniture, there were also entail restrictions. The English law governing how entails worked was codified in a 1285 statute called De Donis Conditionalibus, which sounds a bit like a Harry Potter spell. There were basically two ways to inherit land under English law, fee simple and fee tail. First, the term fee is a Latin derivative of the word fief, which just means a state of land. You can think of fee simple as the land is simply yours to do what you want with, whereas fee tail says you can't sell the estate to anyone except your rightful heir, often referred to as the tenant in tail or the next tenant in line. The rules around this restriction are pretty complicated and they vary somewhat over the years. So sometimes different estates would have slightly differing rules about how they could be inherited and how that chain of custody could be altered and how long the entail lasted. However, some families often worked around this restriction by renewing the entail every generation. This had to be done with both the current owners and the heirs' consent. And while that might seem difficult to pull off, it was actually really easy and fairly common. So imagine you're the heir of a large estate. You've been brought up all your life as the chosen one set to inherit everything. And maybe because of that, you've never been too fussed about financial prudence. Then one day, your father calls you into his study and says, Son, I don't want you selling off our family's ancestral land to just anyone. And you say, Of course I won't, Father. You know me. I'm Mr. Family Pride. Now, your father narrows his eyes at you, perhaps thinking of your outstanding gambling debts and the kind of careless way you spend money when you visit London. And he smiles at you and says, oh, of course, son, of course. But just to give you an extra incentive, I want you to sign this legally binding entail that will prohibit you from selling the land to anyone except your heir. Now, this goes against your plans for financial freedom and being your own man, so to speak. So maybe you hesitate a little about this. So your father smiles at you again and says, son, I can see this is difficult for you. So in exchange for signing this document, I will sign an agreement of my own, one that guarantees you an annual living allowance until I leave this earth. Now, if you don't want either one of us to sign those documents, well, and he shrugs as if to say, good luck finding the funds to pay for your extravagant lifestyle while I'm still alive. So you look at your father, who's in relatively good health and will likely live at least another 10 or 20 years, and you sigh and sign the papers. So now the land is not just entailed until 21 years after your father dies, but you have just renewed it to be entailed for 21 years after you die. Perhaps during that time period, you develop your own family pride and you have a similar conversation with your heir. Most legal scholars agree that the 1925 Law of Property Act ended the ability of estates to be entailed, though some maintain that certain restrictive aspects of the entail still exist in the form of things like conservation easements, rights of first refusal, and deed covenants, all of which serve the purpose of allowing a former landowner to set the terms by which land may be used by its successive owners. Okay, so let's talk briefly about Mr. Collins's relationship with Lady Catherine. I have been so fortunate as to be distinguished by the patronage of the Right Honourable Lady Catherine de Bourgh, 
widow of Sir Lewis de Burgh, whose bounty and beneficence has preferred me to the valuable rectory of this parish, where it shall be my earnest endeavour to demean myself with grateful respect towards her ladyship, and be ever ready to perform those rites and ceremonies which are instituted by the Church of England. Last season we discussed how, in Regency times, the term patron had three common meanings. It could mean a patron of the arts, someone who paid to support one or more artists in their work. The term could also refer to someone who donated money or resources to a charitable cause. But here the term patron refers to patronage in the church, which was the right of a wealthy landholder to appoint a living to a clergyman. Now the assignment a clergyman had was referred to as a living, and it could produce varying amounts of income depending on its size, how it was managed, and the composition of the parishioners who lived within its boundaries. We'll talk a bunch about the economics of livings when we discuss Mansfield Park and Sense and Sensibility, where the details are more integral to the plots of those novels. Now, in the tail end of the earlier quote, Mr. Collins mentions that he's ready to, quote, perform those rites and ceremonies of the Church of England, which Elizabeth refers to here. Elizabeth was chiefly struck by his extraordinary deference for Lady Catherine, and his kind intention of christening, marrying, and burying his parishioners whenever it were required. Those lists of rites, R-I-T-E-S, of the Church of England, are sometimes referred to as rites of passage, because they mark important transition periods in a person's life, such as birth, baptism, marriage, and death, as they pass along their mortal journey on their path to return to the presence of God. According to the 39 Articles of Religion, which was published in 1571 as the foundational set of doctrines for the Church of England, these rites can be divided into two groups— the set of rites or sacraments instituted by Christ, sometimes called the sacraments of the gospel, and those later adopted or taught by the apostles, sometimes called the sacraments of the church. The sacraments of the gospel include baptism and communion, also called the Lord's Supper or Eucharist. The sacraments of the church include confirmation, penance, ordination, marriage, and extreme unction. This latter rite is sometimes referred to as ministering to the sick or anointing the sick. Since extreme unction is often performed just prior to someone's death, it is sometimes referred to as last rites, though most clergy disapprove of this term because the right of extreme unction is available to anyone who's dangerously ill, not just those who are terminally ill. And therefore, someone may receive extreme unction more than once during their lifetime. Now, before I get a bunch of angry letters accusing me of misconstruing Anglican doctrine, it's important to note that the beliefs and practices of the Church of England during the Regency era are not necessarily exactly the same as those practiced by its members today. Nor do all the churches that form part of the Anglican Communion have the exact same interpretation of the 39 Articles. And as with all religions, if you want a good overview of the beliefs of the Church of England or any other Anglican church, I suggest you reach out to a practicing member. And that wraps up our discussion of Pride and Prejudice Chapter 13. Thanks so much for tuning in today. If you'd like to help support the show, please head over to leefalencom slash mycousinjane, sign up for our newsletter, or click on the little donate button. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening.